We're going to continue our studies in Romans 4. Um, Pastor Mark was to teach this, but he's doing the wedding for uh, Weston and Mo Taylor. So if you know them, give them some love and congratulate them because that's awesome. Um, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand and Pastor Zach and Sam will, will get those to you. So we'll read the entirety of chapter 4 and we'll see what we get through. So, let's jump into it. Verse 1 says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. It says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Paul says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, that they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Verse 13, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. We're so close. It says, And not being weak in the faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he would also be able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. And it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raise up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've called us here, God, to worship you, to seek you. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't zone out at at another message on justification, Lord, but that we would understand the point that Paul is driving home. Lord, that we would desire to seek you in a deeper way, Lord. That we would 
maybe hear things that we already knew, God, but we would understand them in a newer sense. Lord, would you speak to our hearts tonight, prepare us to be transformed, God. Show us who you are, God. Um, Just speak mightily through your word tonight, Lord, Um, and bless your people. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So Paul's writing this epistle to the Romans, and, and what it, what's, what's interesting is he's writing to Romans, and he, he's never visited this church before, right? A lot of his epistles, he had visited the church, if not planted the church himself on his missionary work. But Paul was on his third missionary journey, writing to the Romans, saying that he desired to come to them, but he had been hindered unto this point. Um, but we see that, that he doesn't hit circumstantial issues for the church, like he would in epistles, like if you read the Corinthians, he, he, he addresses very specific issues in the church, things that they're specifically dealing with. But when he, when he writes to the Romans, he doesn't speak like that. He doesn't hit any specific uh, situations that might be going on, but rather he, he keeps the, the topic broad. And the intent of his writing is to, to, to go over something called uh, soteriology. And what soteriology is, is just the, it's the doctrine of salvation, and so Paul's not saying, hey, you guys have this issue. Let's work on this, right? I've heard about this going on. Let's fix this. But rather, he's laying down the foundation of, of the simple salvation, right? Because there's a lot of topics that we love to talk about. Some of us kind of transition that into arguing, right? Things like baptism, you know? You did what to your baby? You baptized your baby? They're not saved. You can't baptize a baby, right? We like to talk about stuff like that, you know? you your post-millennial, your post-trib, you can't be in a Calvary chapel, right? We like to talk about those things, but when it comes down to it, those are what we call non-salvific, right? Like if you baptize your baby, you're not affecting the salvation of your baby, right? And so what Paul's hitting here is he's, he, he's talking purely salvation, pure gospel. And I loved what Pastor Mark said last week, is that if you're at the point where you hear what Paul is building up to, and you say, okay, I get the gospel, what's next? You miss the point entirely. If you take the gospel and you don't get excited every time you hear it, you missed it. You missed the point. And so Paul continues pressing in to this idea of justification by faith. He spent three chapters talking about this, and he starts us on a fourth one, looking at some specific examples And why does he do that? Because if we don't get this, if we don't get this, nothing else after it matters. That your ministry can be great. You could be doing awesome things for Jesus. But if you don't understand at the core how you get Jesus in the first place, what you're doing is pointless. You've started on a shaky foundation and you're trying to build upon that. And so Paul continues pressing this matter, right? He, he finished in chapter three, we saw Pastor Mark teaching that, where he says there's no boasting for the people, right? He, he, as Pastor Mark said, he deconstructed the sinner, right? And he rebuilt up Christ. And so he ends chapter three by saying, hey guys, you think you're great, but you don't really have anything to boast about. He says, you have nothing to offer that's worth any value to God, Right? And so he, 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 coming off of that, he starts chapter four by saying, what then shall we say, right? So he's not starting a new topic, right? Right, Pastor Mark said that, that, that when the Bible was written, when Paul wrote his letters, he didn't write, okay, chapter four, 
verse one, and then start writing. It was one long letter. And so we read it like one long letter. And so Paul says, what then shall we say? Not starting a new topic, but going deeper into everything that he's put forth into this point. And he starts off our passage. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? He said, for if Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about. He says, but not before God. And, and let's be honest, don't we live in a world of boasting? Like, like we like to say that, oh, I'm living the humble Christian life, right? We try as best we can to keep ourselves humble, to keep the pride at bay. But we live in a world where it's almost impossible to avoid boasting, right? You graduate high school. You start looking at colleges. You start applying. What does the college want from you? They say, send me your grades. Send me your GPA. Send me me your extracurriculars. What AP test did you take? How many did you take, right? And then what is usually attached to most of those? A letter about all the great things about you, right? They're asking you to boast about yourself. I filled out a letter of recommendation for one of our college kids. She said, hey, can you fill out this letter of rec for, for financial aid? And I said, yeah. And so, you know, I didn't know if it was like a survey where it's like on a scale of one to five. What do you think? But I looked at it and essentially it was very open, but it said, tell us why this person deserves the money. And that was it at its core value. It said, hey, write us a letter boasting about this person and we'll decide whether or not they deserve it, right? Out of college, maybe in college, looking for a job, right? You want a job? What do you need? A resume. What's a resume? It's just a list of everything you can boast about, right? I went here for school for this many years. I took this training, right? This was my GPA. I've done these jobs. You have a whole section just for skills. Like this is what I do well, right? You got to boast your way into your job. And so we live in a world filled with boasting, right? I was reading an article this week. It was really interesting. It said, it said that, that if you're working in a field and you lose your job, sometimes it's better to not find just any old job. But it said that if you take a a step back in what you're working, if you take a a demotion in a sense, this is when you try to find a job back up at the level you were working at, you had a 50% less chance of getting a callback. Why? Why? Because the article said that you you didn't look as good anymore. You couldn't boast about that, right? And so, so we live in a world filled with boasting. We got to make ourselves look good so that we can get places. Now, Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, yeah, he'd have something to boast about, right? If you looked at all the works of Abraham, yeah, he might look pretty good. But what does he say? He says, but not before God. Because Paul wants to continue driving this point home that your salvation is not earned by what you can do for God, right? And it seems like, yeah, obviously, right? But like Pastor Mark said, if we don't get excited about what Paul's working towards here as he starts this idea, then we've missed the point. But salvation is not earned by what we can give to God. It's given through what we find in him. Think about Noah for a second, right? Think about Noah, called to build a great ark for the Lord, right? So many cubits by so many cubits. You got to finish it this way and you need this many animals, this many clean, this many unclean, right? A mighty work for the Lord, right? But Genesis 6, 8 says that before 
Noah received any instruction on building this ark, it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's what Noah found in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't good works that he presented before God that that allowed him to be saved. It was that Noah found grace in the Lord. And so it's about what we find in the Lord, not what we can offer up to God. And so Paul will continue about what Abraham would be able to find. He says, what does the scriptures say? Right? If it was according to the flesh, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. And he says that the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so we see two parts here. We see what Abraham had to offer, what Abraham did for his justification, and what God did in response to that. And for Abraham, it simply says one thing. It says, Abraham believed God. And I want, I want you guys to really meditate on that. That all Abraham did was believe God, right? It doesn't say Abraham did this and that. It doesn't give us a list of his accomplishments. We don't have his resume to see whether or not he's worthy to be accounted righteous. It just says that Abraham believed God. And what was God's response? It says that God accounted to him for righteousness, for believing, right? God didn't realize Abraham's righteousness. He didn't say, oh, you believed. How did I miss your righteousness before? Now I see it, right? God didn't realize Abraham's righteousness. What does it say? He accounted to Abraham righteousness. He didn't make Abraham righteous. He put it on his account. He says, now I declare you righteous. Simply because Abraham believed. And we read in the gospel of John In the first chapter, it says, but to all who did receive him, who what? Believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, right? So so those who believe in his name, right? That's the requirement, believing. And it says that God gives the right. Nobody earns it. God gives and gives and gives in a world that teaches you to earn and earn and earn. And it's important to note, it's important to note that Paul's aim when he's writing isn't to demoralize the reader, right? Like you read chapter three, and if you just stopped for, 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 from verse one through 20, you'd leave feeling pretty bad about yourself, right? Because that's him deconstructing the sinner, right? That's him showing us our unrighteousness. But Paul's intent is never to demoralize the reader. It's to give them a better alternative, And so he spends his time deconstructing the sinner, as Pastor Mark said, so that he could start building up the better alternative, right? But he makes a crucial, crucial point in verse 5. It says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And I want us to see who God justifies. It says that God justifies the ungodly. Right? He doesn't recognize the righteousness of the godly because he just finished telling us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, so he's very clear on saying, this message is for the ungodly. That if you want Jesus, you need to recognize your brokenness. But in order to receive that, you need to want that. And in order to want that, you've got to, you've got to realize you need something more. And so we, we notice that God justifies the ungodly. And as he spent chapter three revealing that, right? 
Not that, not that the reader would walk away for the worst, feeling bad about themselves, right? Paul's not trying to make the Romans feel bad about themselves. He says, I need you guys to know that you're falling short and that's a good thing because there's a better alternative. And that's what he presents us with here. And it's hard for us. It's hard for us to hear that, a message of you're not good enough, right? We like to think that, that after we read our Bible, that we should always leave feeling like happy, you know? Like joyful, for sure. But like sometimes we read the Bible and it, and it hurts, right? The message of the gospel can be rough at times. See, the, the whole Old Testament, right? is filled with what? It's the law. It's all about the law. And what's the point in all of that? Not for us to be able to fulfill it. But we see that by for the law is the knowledge of sin, right? The law was to reveal that we couldn't do it on our own, right? But that we recognize it pointed to the coming Messiah. And so sometimes as we read the Bible, as we, as we understand the gospel, it's going to hurt and that's okay because God's working on us. God's fixing the broken. God's healing the sick. And so it can be painful to accept. But I love what John Piper says. John Piper says this, if you don't know the trouble you're in, you probably won't recognize the rescue when it comes, right? If you don't see that you need help, you're not going to recognize it when it comes. If you don't know the trouble you're in, your ears will not be attuned to grasp the beauty and the preciousness and the necessity of justification. And you will probably think of your problem in another way and think of your problem in another way and think there is another way to get right with God. And he concludes with this. And then another gospel, another gospel will seem to fit and you will embrace it to your peril. And so it's, it's, it's crucial that we start building off of the right notions. Because I don't want to stand up here. I don't want Pastor Zach and Pastor Mark to stand up here telling you, you guys are great. And that's why Jesus wants you. That seems awesome. Like who wouldn't want to hear that? Like you're awesome. And that's why Jesus loves you, right? We would love to hear that message, but it's a false foundation, right? It's a false foundation. See, for some of us, for some of us, our, our problems of inadequacy is feeling that we need to work harder, right? For a lot of us, we're in college, you know? And in, in order to get through in four years now, you got to take more classes than before, right? A couple years ago, it was four classes. Now it's five to get through in four years, right? How many credits are you taking? You got to work harder if you want to earn that, right? If you're feeling inadequate and, and, you, and you realize, okay, my problem is I need to work harder, your solution is to try to work harder. But when that fails us, we're left just as broken, if not more so than we were to begin with, right? Pastor Mark hit upon this idea talking about measurements, right? He said that we're surrounded, we're surrounded by measurements. We can't avoid it, right? So where'd you go to school, right? One person goes to community college. One person goes to Harvard. Now we may not say it to the person's face, but we kind of respect one of those more, right? We go, oh, you went to Harvard? Right on. You went to Moorpark? So did everyone else in TO, right? Like we, we measure up, we measure up. Right? How much does your house cost? Right? Oh, it's not big enough. You know? Pastor Mark loves to talk about the houses in Malibu. And if you drive through Malibu, you'll see why. Some of those houses are incredible. 
I can't, I can't fathom living in Malibu. It's amazing. And I'm living in a 600 square foot apartment, right? And I go, oh my gosh, we need that. We need that. If you live in Westlake, it's crazy if you don't have a pool, right? Like, you don't have a, you don't have a pool? What, do you live in a barn? What are you doing with your life, right? We measure up. How are you doing compared to how am I doing, right? He talked about celebrity lists, right? If you're a C-list, you're trying to get to a B-list. And if you're B-list, you're trying to get to an A-list. You're always trying to measure up to more. And it even, it even affects like the really stupid things. This weekend, we, me and my wife were standing in the hallway. And if you, if you guys follow her on Instagram, you would have seen the dumbest video in the world that we made together. And she was cracking up. She thought this was the funniest video ever. We were making fart noises with her mouth. And she thought this was hilarious. Now, I thought it was pretty funny too, but I didn't think it was that funny, right? So, so as she's posting this and it's just replaying in the background, what did I say to her? I said, oh, that's not going to get as many likes as you think it is, right? It's about measuring up. Oh, you think that's funny? We could have made it funnier, right? We could have gotten more likes, right? And Instagram likes to make it worse because now it shows you how many people have viewed your Instagram and how many people like the video. So I'm sitting there watching it, refreshing the page for like half an hour instead of writing my message. And it's like, hey, a hundred people have viewed your video, but only 20 have liked it. It's like, what are you guys doing? You're not liking my video? Why? But why does that matter? Because we got to measure up. We got to measure up even in the dumb things. And so our, our culture is built around a need to do that, right? You're taught at the end of the day, at the end of your day, you're taught, what did you earn today? What did you accomplish today? What did you do today? Now, I'm not saying don't work, don't work hard, right? The Bible says we're called the labor, but that's our culture is measuring up. What did you earn today, right? How are your grades, right? We're so focused on how my grades are doing. If I'm not getting a 93, I'm not doing good enough, right? There's a lot of you that are focused on, on always doing better in your grades, even when you're doing fine, right? And that consumes your life. How's your paycheck compared to last week, right? That's something that, that I really struggle with, is not getting worried about my next paycheck. Like, is this going to be enough? And the Lord says, well, was it enough last time? I said, yeah. So he says, well, then it'll be enough this time, right? But how's your paycheck? How does that, how does that measure up? Right? How many followers do you have on social media? How popular are you getting? And he says that we tend to bring this idea into ideas of justification. And so we have to be careful that in a world that tells you to measure up, our faith is built upon people who can't measure up. Right? So some of us feel like if I can just measure up to more, I can earn my justification. I'll be a better Christian, right? A better Christian, as if that was a real thing. Because right? it all starts here. The same for us is justification on faith. And Paul continues in this idea. Romans 4 verse 4, it says, To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Right? So if you want to work for your salvation, Paul says, you can try that. But what you're doing, what you're doing, is it's, a, it's, it's essentially removing God's grace and saying, I want to make God owe me something. I want to make God indebted to me. That's what we say when we, when we think we, we can work for our salvation, is God's going to owe me justification after I do this. And so Paul warns us on that, right? And it's an idea, it's an idea that we learned from an early age. It's an idea that, that, that since you're a kid, you hear these ideologies, right? Your parents would tell you, okay, if you eat your vegetables, you get dessert, right? If you eat all your vegetables, if you finish your dinner, you get dessert, Right? 
So you go to your parents later. It's like, it's a couple hours later. You say, hey, mom, so how about that dessert? What does your mom say? Well, did you finish your dinner? Well, no, I didn't. Well, then no, you don't get dessert because you didn't earn it. I don't owe you anything, right? I don't owe you dinner, or, or sorry, I don't owe you dessert because you didn't finish your dinner, right? You start school, right? You, you, you freshman year, I remember the freshman year of school, how crazy it was trying to get your classes, right? And, and you, you get like two, and then you're waitlisted on like 18. And so you have to try to attend the two that you already got into and get to all the other lectures and make sure like you, you might find a spot in there. And so you miss the two that you're already in, right? Because it's like, I'm already in that class. And then you go to the next lecture and, he's, and the teacher says, who are, who are you? Oh, well, I was, on, I, was, I was registered, so I'm here. She says, well, I took you off because you weren't here last week. Why? She doesn't owe you anything anymore because you weren't there, right? Because you were trying to get your other classes. You're trying to work for your other classes. She doesn't owe you that anymore, right? You, you go to your job and then you just decide, yeah, I'm going to take a week off. But you don't tell anybody. You're just like, yeah, I might, I might take a nice vacation, go up north, maybe visit some family, right? You take a week off, you show up the next Friday, you try walking into your boss's office saying, hey, where's my paycheck? What is he going to say? No, first off, no. Why? Because you didn't work this whole week. So I don't owe you anything, right? And our lives are filled with trying to make people owe us stuff, trying to make people indebted to us. You work hard at your company so that by the end of two weeks, your company owes you something. You work hard in your classes trying to get better grades. Why? So that your teacher owes you a good grade. But here's the thing with God that we have to understand is that we don't want what he owes us. We don't want what God owes us. Romans 3.23, we saw, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. And in in Romans 6, we'll see, for the wages of sin is death. And so you want to work for your wages? All right, God will give it to you. He says, but that's death, right? So we don't want what God owes us. Rather, we want his grace, right? Because many of us, honestly, many of us, you guys are talented people, and I mean that. When I hear what you guys do during the week, I'm, I'm just amazed that, that you guys work jobs and go to school and some of you support families. I, I, I am blown away by what the body does. You have stuff to boast about before man. You guys look good on a resume. But before God, these things don't gain his approval. We don't want what he owes. We want his grace, what's undeserved. But the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Paul will turn to to a very well-known person of the Bible, David, to build an example off of this. Verse five, he says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And what Paul is, Paul is quoting here is, is, is a Psalm of David, Psalm 32. And, and David would have written this Psalm most likely following 
his encounters with Bathsheba and Uriah. And if you don't know David's story, you can read about it in 2 Samuel 11. But what happens is David sees a beautiful young woman. Beautiful. He needs her. And so he, he asks about her. Well, that's Bathsheba, but she's married. But what happens? Well, David meets with Bathsheba and they lie together. He commits adultery. And to make it worse, to make it worse, some time goes by and Bathsheba comes or sends a message to David. She says, David, I'm pregnant. David, I'm pregnant. Uriah's going to find out. And so what does David do? He calls the commander of the army. He says, okay, I need you to take Uriah and you're going to put him at the front of the most gnarly battle. Put him, in the, put him in the very front. And if that wasn't enough, he tells his officer, he says, and then draw the other troops back. He says, I need you to make sure that Uriah dies. I need you to make sure that he's murdered. And so David, coming off the weight of this, the guilt of this, writes Psalm 32. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. He says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And this word blessed is such a, such a wonderful word. And in, in the Greek, it's, it's makirios, right? It sounds kind of like a Harry Potter spell. It says makirios, this is blessed, which just means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy is the man, right? And to go deeper, it's defined as a condition where you are deeply secure and content and happy in God. So being blessed is not a condition where God's happy with you for your accomplishments, right? I'm so blessed, right? I work super hard this week. I have a lot of great stuff. I'm super blessed, right? Being blessed is not a condition where God is pleased with you because of what you accomplished. Being blessed is not being happy because we've earned approval. David wasn't blessed for what God owed him. He was blessed by what he found in God. That as he was coming off the sins of adultery and murder, two sins for which there was no sacrifice in the nation of Israel, all David deserved was death at this point. In the face of his sin, he understood what it meant to deserve death, right? And he writes Psalm 32. And he says, I'm blessed. Blessed is the man. Why? Because he found grace in the Lord. Despite his sins, God showed his grace to David. And I want, I want us as a church to think about this, that God will offer you grace. And for a lot of us, we continue to carry the weight of our sins. God, God offers us grace. And yet we still hold on to those sins, those sins that make us feel like we're not enough our past that makes us feel inadequate. The things for which God says, I've forgiven you that creep back up. What are the roadblocks that we put up in our lives that prevent our hearts from receiving the gift of God's grace? What do we build up with the sins that we, that we transform into our identity that prevents us from receiving our identity in Christ? Where we let those sins continue to control us to define us. And God says, I have grace for that. I have grace for that. It's because we're still trying to earn something before God. Right? I have to make up for that sin. 
I've got to make up for this, right? We try to earn our way with God. And so Paul's going to continue to battle that mentality. That mentality of God's grace isn't enough. I got to work for this, right? He's going to continue to push that forward. However, there seems to be a church tendency to be worried with this teaching. That you can't work for your justification. A lot of people are worried that this creates fake Christians, right? Right? Abusers of grace, right? And John Piper will say, but I'm not, I'm not going to take the gospel out of the Bible in, in order to avoid the risk of fake Christians, right? And so I'm not going to change what we're learning here, that it's still justification by faith, but I want us to understand the big picture, right? The passage from Genesis that Paul uses that says Abraham believed and it was accounted him for righteousness. It's used two other times in the New Testament. One is in Galatians, where Paul is talking about a very similar idea, that you're justified by faith alone. <clears throat> but the second, the second we see in James. And if you read this passage in James, and we went through James with Pastor Mark, if you read this section in James, it almost seems like they're contradicting one another. It almost seems like Paul is, or James is saying Paul is wrong, and this is how it works. For James says in 2.23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then, you see then that man is justified by works and not by faith only. And we read that and we go, well, well, well Paul just told us that it was by faith alone. And now James is saying that there's works involved. So which one is it? Do I got to earn it or do I not have to earn it? And we seem to face a problem in reconciling these two. And a man by the name of Alexander Cross will, will comfort that feeling in reference to this passage by saying they, talking about Paul and James, are not antagonists facing each other with cross swords, right? They're not trying to fight each other. They're, they're for the same gospel. He says they stand back to back confronting different foes of the gospel, and so this is what Paul and James are doing, is that they're facing different ends of the spectrum by what they're talking about. That as Paul teaches justification by faith alone, he's correcting those who feel like they need to earn something from God, right? That they need to earn their way before God, for God to, to accept them and to approve them. <clears throat> and so we see that James is very aware that you could take Paul's teaching and start to abuse it. That rather than going to one end of the spectrum, we go to the other. We start abusing grace. And so we see James is not confronting Paul by saying you're wrong, but rather he's defending Paul by combating the other side of the spectrum. And see, this is, this is why when, if you've ever heard a preacher say that, that context is important, this is one of those passages where it's super important. See, as we're looking at a, a specific verse from James, we need to understand the big picture that James is trying to create here. He says, do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect, right? So James is still not saying that Abraham was, was earning justification. He doesn't say that. He's saying that, that the faith for which he was justified was made perfect through his works, right? James isn't, James isn't changing the definition of justification. He's adding to that of faith. He's not correcting Paul and saying, you kind of define justification wrong. What he's doing is he's saying, people who say they have faith, you're kind of getting it wrong. And so he's correcting our definition of faith, right? 
And it's a faith that, that's genuine, is what, is what Paul's kind of take-home is, right? Because so many of us understand that we're justified through faith, right? We hear that all the time. You hear that growing up. You're justified by faith. If you grew up in the church, that's something you just know, right? But there's a lot of people in the church who, who don't quite understand the depth of faith, right? They don't understand the depth of faith. Some of us may have a, a logic-based faith. I, I tend to fall into this category where you may be good at apologetics, at de- defending scripture, that you understand all the right doctrines. You go deep in your doctrinal studies, right? But James will say in 2.19, you believe there is one God, you do well. He says, even the demons believe and tremble. He says, even the demons have proper doctrine. That's not what faith is about. He says, faith goes deeper. Some of us, some of us may have a faith that goes no deeper than a name, right? It's, it's, it's easy for us to say that we have a faith to declare that openly to the world. But if I watch some of you guys go about your private business, would it show that you have a faith in, in Jesus? Does your private life match up with your public declarations? So some of us only have a faith by name. James says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And and James is saying that that faith is more than just a name badge that you put on, right? Hello, my name is faith. I got faith, put it on, good, right? He's saying it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than that. And it's a caution that we shouldn't take lightly, not to separate the ideas of faith and works, right? And we want to be careful not to add works to justification, but we we also want to be careful that we're not separating faith and works, Right? When Pastor Mark taught through, the, through James, he gave the age-old example of, of a chair. Right? That, that I could bring a chair up here right, and say, do you have faith that this chair will support you? Right? When you sit down, you don't often think about, will this chair hold me? Because you have faith that it's going to hold you up. And Pastor Mark talked about that. Right? And so, so what, what James is doing, as Pastor Mark said, is that James takes it a step further. Do you have faith that this chair is going to hold you? Well, yeah. So James is going to say, sit down. Right? You guys remember that? He's, he, James is going to say, sit down. But here's the crucial point in that. Is that James tells us to sit down, but sitting in the chair in no way adds any structural integrity to the chair. If it's going to support you, it's going to support you whether or not you sit in it. That the chair in and of itself has the power to hold you. Just because you decide to sit in it didn't all of a sudden make it have the ability to support you. And so that we in no way add to the power of God, right? So that when we're asked the question, do you have faith that the chair will hold you, right? Some of us may respond, well, you know, what's it made out of? You know, who made it? Is it nails? Is it glue? Where'd you buy all the materials? Is it quality stuff, right? And we get a doctrinal faith, a logical faith. We have to understand before we're willing to sit down, right? Same question is posed. Do you have faith that this chair will hold you, right? Yeah, I do have faith, but I don't think I'm called to sit down, right? I don't think I'm called to sit in the chair, but I have faith and we have a nominal faith, right? I'm just not called to that right now to sit down. And so we see that Paul and James are defending the same gospel from two different sides. And so we don't want to, to get so encompassed with just what Paul's saying that we forget that there's other scripture that talks about justification too. 
and that we want to combat both sides of the spectrum. And so as they are fending off the different sides, it's important for us to find Jesus in the middle of it. That oftentimes, as you hear tensions among believers and non-believers or believers and believers, usually you'll find Jesus right in the middle of those two. That, that Jesus sits in the tension of, of, of all the arguments. And so, so between these two, we have to find Jesus. And that's understanding this, what we said with the chair. Is that you don't increase God's power by taking action in your faith. You don't give God any more power than he's already had by taking action in your faith. But what you do is affirm your faith in his power. You're affirming your belief in his abilities to do what he promises. And and, and a a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I, I try to continually remind myself is that the grace that does not change my life, excuse me, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. So if you're, if you're saying, I have faith in Jesus, but you don't believe he's going to change your life, what kind of faith is that? What kind of faith is that? How does, your, how does your life compare between the time that you came to Jesus and now? For some of you, that may be, it was like yesterday or like a couple weeks. And like, so, so the growth may not be as drastic. But for those of us who maybe grew up in the church or we've had years in the church, how is your life different now than it was when you came to Jesus? Because if it's the same, I guarantee you're missing something that Jesus has to offer. Because Jesus is the better alternative, right? It's not the add-on to what we already have. It's the better alternative. Some of us may feel like we're, we're plateauing with God, right? Oh, I'm, just, I'm just struggling right now. It feels like I'm not getting anything from God. I feel like God's not speaking to me. And oftentimes, at least for myself, I have to ask myself, what callings has God placed on my life that I'm not taking seriously, right? God, I want you to take me deeper. He says, I'm giving you opportunities to go deeper. You're not taking them. Did you guys know, did you guys know that, that 56% of the church, right? The church that, that declares we're to make disciples of all nations, 56% of the church believes they do not need to share their faith. So that... So that in the callings of our life, when we ignore those and we're baffled by why God's not doing anything, he's giving us opportunities to go deeper with him. He, he wants to push us past the logical faith, the nominal faith, the dead faith without works. And so that's what we see here. And so for Abraham, a genuine faith that produces works looked like this. Verse 19 of our passage, it says, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, right? You tell a man who's a hundred, hey, you're going to have a kid. They'd laugh at you, right? They'd laugh at you. And not only that, but the deadness of Sarah's womb. So you have two super old people just given the promise, hey, you're going to have a kid pretty soon, right? That's ridiculous. That's never going to happen. Let's try another promise, God. Like, I don't think that one's going to work out. It says he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened, not in works. He was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Do you have faith that the chair is going to hold you? Then sit down, then sit down. But don't forget that the chair is going to 
have the ability to hold you either way, whether or not you choose to sit down. And that's what Paul is breaking down here. And so as Paul goes deeper in pursuing this idea of justification by faith alone, it's imperative, it's imperative that we see the type of faith required for God to impart this gift to us. A faith that produces works. As Paul will say elsewhere, a faith that is working in love, right? He doesn't say you're justified by faith and works. He says you're justified by faith that works. That a genuine faith will produce works, not to empower God, but demonstrating his power through your faith. And 410 of, of Romans says, what then? How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It says not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, right? The sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith with which he had while still uncircumcised. And so God calling Abraham to have faith to circumcise himself and his family wasn't a work where God says, if you do this, I will justify you, but you've got to do this first. No, Paul says that before he was circumcised, he was justified. So that it wasn't by works, it was purely by faith. And that the, the circumcision was, was a way of, of proving Abraham's faith. That he was affirming his belief that God could fulfill this promise placed over his life. Hebrews 11, verse 6, the author will write, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So that our goal in what we do can never be to try to garner the attention of God, right? I was, I was the third of four children. So I was, I was the baby for about four years, and then I had a little sister. And so I was like kind of bumped up to middle child, but I wasn't really bumped up to middle child because like my brother was already the middle child. And so I had to vie for attention, I felt like. I felt like I'm not the baby anymore. I'm not the middle child. What am I? I'm weird number three, right? And so I tried to vie for attention. How did I do that? By doing a lot of stuff for my parents. I tried to be the, the goody two shoes, right? Hey, the baby's crying again. Oh, I'll get the bottle. I'll get the pacifier. I'll get the blanket. What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? right? Mom, pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. I'll, I'll try to do this for you so that you pay attention to me, right? And we do that with God. Try to pay attention to me, God. Look at what I'm doing for you. Notice me, right? We want to be noticed. And so that in what we do, the goal is never to try to gain God's attention, but to seek him. But to seek him. That what we're doing for God is pulling us deeper into who he is. That it's showing us the depth of faith. That it's not just the surface nominal thing, but that it goes deeper, that it goes deeper. And that as Hebrews says, having faith that he rewards such a one. Psalm 9.10 says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken, doesn't say those who earned your approval, those who did good works, those who look good before men. It says, you have not forsaken those who seek you, who seek you. And so as we look at all this, the question is, why faith, right? Why by faith? Why in everything that we're looking at does it come back to justification by faith? And Paul tells us that in Romans 4.16. He says, therefore, 
It is of the faith that it might be according to grace. And so the reason why faith is so essential is because it's the only condition of the heart that accords with God's grace. That he says, you need to have a heart of faith so that it can be given according to grace, right? And that God's grace is the deepest foundation of our guarantee of salvation. Because if you'll remember back to last week again, what did Pastor Mark say about faith and salvation? He said, it's not simply that you have faith that will save you, right? If you're drowning in a pool, you can look at the life preserver and go, oh, I know that thing could save me. But if that thing doesn't get to you, you're going to drown, right? You could have faith all you want in that thing. But if, if you don't make sure that that thing gets to you, you're going to drown. You're going to drown. And so it's not our faith simply. It's the object of our faith that saves. And it's the, the, the grace behind that object that saves. And so for those, for those of us who, who may feel like we're drowning, if you just feel overwhelmed, like you're not doing good enough, that you've got to do more, Paul writes this for you. Because God doesn't justify the godly, but the ungodly. Jesus will tell us in Mark, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But he says, those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. First John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so we live in a world that from a very young age will tell us that it's all about you doing you. That you've got to go your way. That you're a self-made man. You're a self-made woman. That you can't tell people or people can't tell you what to do rather. Don't let people define you, right? Don't let people tell you that you're never enough. That you, that you can do it. You can do it. That's what our world tells us. That's how we're raised. But when the real world hits, we see that advice start to break apart, right? That the world wants to encourage you by saying, you can do it all on your own. And then you try to get a real job and you're like, I can't get this on my own. I need like the best recommendations to get here, right? I need to have everybody who's in power of authority for my boss to call. Everyone who I've ever pleased, I need my boss to talk to, right? Because we can't do it all on our own, right? You get your first job and after a while, you're told, hey, you need a raise, man. You've been working there way too long without a raise. You deserve a raise. And if they don't give you one, you find a better job, right? You move on to something better, right? You get your first apartment. Oh, that's so much fun, getting your first apartment. You're, you're, you're sharing like two bedrooms with like eight of your, of your, your other student friends. Like, like you're all squished into this one tiny room so that you can have a playroom, right? I remember my brother in college did that. They had two bedrooms and there was like six of them. And so they, they just had bunk bed, bunk bed, bunk bed, bunk bed. So if you wanted to get to your bunk bed in the back of the room, you had to crawl through the other bunk beds so that they could have a playroom, right? But that's fun when you first get the apartment, but now you're out of college. Come on, man. Why are you living with eight other guys? Get a real job. Get a real apartment. Go find a house, right? The world that tells us that we're always enough, 
proves that we aren't. The world that, that, that's all about earning the next step. But that's not how it works for the Christian faith, right? That's not how it works for the Christian faith. For those of us who are trying to earn something before God, it never pans out. It makes us more weary. And so in our weariness, we go, oh man, I got to do more. I got to do more. And what does that do? It makes us more weary. I'm going to close with a couple thoughts. It's not really closing, so Dane, don't come up yet. But I want to close with a couple thoughts. In all this talk about Abraham, in all this talk about Abraham, Paul is sure to conclude with the understanding that justifying Abraham is not the point. Like the argument wasn't, okay, see, Abraham's justified, right? As if like the church had some big dispute over, well, is Abraham justified, right? Like that wasn't his point. It wasn't to conclude by saying, see, Abraham is justified. Now get over it, right? That's not his point. But rather, in deconstructing Abraham, the covenantal father, right? For the Jews to look back and say, that, that is my salvation, was David, his covenant with the father, right? So focused on the circumcision, the works, the law. The point was to break down Abraham's justification to see what it was really about at its core. He shows the centrality of justification by a genuine faith alone, by faith alone, so that our hearts might be in accordance with the grace of God. Because we don't want what he owes us. We don't want what he owes us. We want his grace. And so Paul writes in Romans 4.23, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And I want us to think about this in two ways. For those of you who are saved, that are part of the body, that are believers, if you're feeling inadequate, remind yourselves of the promises of God. It's so simple, but it's something that if you're honest with yourself, you probably don't do enough. That do you know the promises God declares over your life? Because if you don't, you start to feel inadequate because you fall back into the mindset of, I got to do more for God. He's not noticing me, right? But our passage was clear to say that the promise was not made according to the law, but of the righteousness through faith. And so that's for us in the body, right? There's a big peril of the Christian to fall into the feeling of needing Jesus and something. Am I right? If we're honest with ourselves, that we fall into the mindset of, I need Jesus and something, right? I need Jesus and my family, and you can take everything else, Jesus. I need Jesus and school, because that's what's going to get me a good job. I need Jesus and the job that I finally got. We, we start saying we need Jesus and, Right? I, I, I often catch myself feeling like I need Jesus and my wife, right? I love my wife. I'm happy that I'm with her. God's happy that I'm with her. But if I need her to survive, I've totally missed the point of Jesus. I've made him not enough. See, we see in Job, the story of Job, is that the angels are presenting themselves before God, 
right? The angels come to give an account of themselves before God. And the Lord talks to Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? He said that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil, right? God says, here's a man who reveres me, honors me, fears me, and worships me. Have you considered him, Satan? And Satan will answer and says, yeah, but does, just, does Job fear God for no reason? He says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge up around him in his house and all that he has on every side? He says, you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. He says, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your faith. Satan says, yeah, God, maybe he does now, but if you took away everything that you've given him, he's, he's going to curse you to your face, man. He's not going to love you anymore. And so as Job's life was torn down, as God gave Satan permission to take away from Satan, he says, okay, you can take his family, just don't touch him. You can take his property, don't just touch him. You can take his health, just don't kill him. As Job experienced his life being broken down, Job understood what it meant to not have anything to offer to God, but faith. That Job sat with nothing to give God, but his continued faith in what he was doing. That he knew the promises of the Lord, right? And for that, it says that the Lord accepted Job. He didn't accept Job for abiding by the law. He accepted Job for his faith, right? This was following Job praying for his friends. God says, pray for your friends and sacrifice for them. And so what does Job do? He has a work produced from his faith. He says, yes, Lord, I will pray for them. And he says, and I accept you, Job. Now, don't get me wrong. These other topics are good things. I'm not saying go and quit school unless you're called to that. Right? I'm not saying go and leave your family, go and leave your job. These are all good things. But, but what we do need to be careful of is that, is that we're not adding these things to our foundation. That we don't fall into the mindset of, okay, Jesus, I need this, and then you can have everything else. So just let me keep my wife, and then you can have everything else. Because if, if your wife's taken away from you, what happens? If that's part of your foundation, everything that you started to build up upon that, will start to crumble because the foundation is no longer there. And so at the foundational level, it's faith in Jesus alone. And so before, because I don't want this to be a message of like, okay, so have faith. By the way, faith produces works. Like I don't want it to feel like I'm telling you guys to work. So before you begin offering your service to the Lord, ensure that you're offering him a genuine faith. That, that it's, um, it's, it's, I've seen it a lot in the church where, where we get new people coming here. They say, oh, I want the Lord. I want the Lord. And then they get him and they go, okay, I'm going to serve. And then they get lost in ministries. They get lost in service. And we overlook them for discipleship. They don't get fed the way they need to get fed. And they've offered up service to the Lord before offering up a genuine faith, before understanding the depths of that. For those, of a, for those of you not part of the body, if there's any in here who is not saved, no condemnation, no condemnation. But for those who are not saved, that are feeling inadequate, my word to you is good. And that seems off for me to say, good, 
But here's why. This is where God calls you to repentance. That in in realizing you're not enough, this is where God offers his grace, right? For he justifies the ungodly, not the godly. He came to call sinners to repentance, not call the righteous. So knowing you're not good enough is the first step to acknowledging that you need something more. And we see Paul lay out time after time that the better alternative is always Jesus. Christ doesn't accept good works as a means to be justified, nor does he want them. Jesus does not want you to try to earn your justification, right? Because Paul said those who work, the wages will be counted to them as debt, not grace. And God will have to give you what he owes you. And the wages of sin are death. And now we close on these last couple of thoughts. I want to give you guys just something that that the Lord's really pushed me to work on that has drastically, drastically changed my relationship with him. Because it's, it's, it's part of human nature that in our sin, we cower away from desiring to be seen. That we can spend all day trying to get noticed, trying to get those likes on Instagram, trying to get our followers, trying to get friends. But in the face of sin, we don't want anyone to see us. Adam and Eve in the garden, upon their sin, they hid from God. They tried to cover up their shame. We have a tendency to cower away from God and people in the midst of sin. But for those of us here in the church, this is a healthy environment to come and share your burdens. James will write in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Share yourself here. Share yourself here. We're here to pray with you. Our heart of the church is one for reconciliation. Paul's intention is not to destroy the sinner. It's to give us the opportunity to start building up new people in Christ. That is Paul's intentions here. And I want to close with a psalm. Another psalm that David would write after going to lie with Bathsheba. It's Psalm 51. Most of you have probably heard it, but it's so good. For you, talking to God, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it, right? If you needed a sacrifice for my sin, I would give it, Lord. He says, you do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And so the message at its core may be simple because justification at its core is simple. It's not a checklist of works that you have to get done. It's that that God requires nothing but a genuine faith that accords with his grace, that he might bestow upon you the gift of salvation. And so I close again with what Pastor Mark said last week, that if you get to the point where you say, I understand the gospel, what's next? You've missed it. You've missed it. Don't let yourself stop getting excited about what Paul builds up to. Your heart should rejoice every time you hear the gospel. We're coming up on Easter. Man, I've sat through so many Good Friday services, so many Easter services, but I don't get tired of it. 
because I get to rejoice in the gospel every year on a specified day. That yeah, I know what to mostly expect, but I'm so excited that I know what I get to expect. I know what Christ has to offer me. And so don't let us get to a place where we don't get excited about the gospel. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't earn justification. God, I pray that we wouldn't try to work for it so that you would give us what we owe. But Lord, that we would understand that you desire a broken and a contrite heart. Lord, so, so don't let us stop getting excited about the gospel. Don't let us get so focused in, in ministries and in works that we forget the person for whom we're doing them. Lord, that as we, as we work, as we're sanctified, as you make us more like your son, that it would all point back to the gospel, that it all started for us the same at justification before works, that we might have the seal and guarantee of our salvation in your Holy Spirit. So would you rain down now, Holy Spirit? Would we experience you in a deeper sense? That we would be reminding ourselves the promises of God. That we would be seeing who you are so that we don't fall into the temptation of thinking we're all that. But that you come for the broken. You come for the sick. Those are the ones who need a savior. So Lord, let us never, never fall to the temptation of feeling like we don't need a savior. Would your name be lifted high tonight, Lord? I thank you for every heart in here that showed up. Lord, there are no accidents in showing up to church, Lord. There's no accidents in your kingdom. And so, Lord, for those here who needed to hear the simplicity of the gospel, would that transform their hearts? Lord, and for all of us, would we experience the simplicity of the gospel? That at least for the, the next three songs of worship, it wouldn't be about earning something, but that it would be us pouring out our burdens to you so that you could pour out your grace upon us, Lord. Prepare us for this week of school and work whatever we face, Lord, knowing that you're enough for us. You're enough. Lord, be glorified in our lives. Be magnified in what we do, what we say, what we preach. Lord, be the king of our lives, Jesus. We love you, but we thank you that you love us so much more, so much better. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.